This podcast was recorded on January 9th, 2019. The views and opinions expressed herein are as of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of DoubleLine Capital or its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. Welcome to Season 5 of The Sherman Show. I'm here with my co-host, Samuel Lau. Hey, hey. And today we have a special guest with us, Mr. Jeff Mayberry, Portfolio Manager from the Macross Allocation Team. Hello, Jeff. Hello, Jeff. Good to see you since we stepped down from the trading desk. Yes, we, we're actually sitting closer right now than we usually are. Yeah, it's a little, it's a little uh, tight in this room here. So what we want to do today is uh, kind of kick off 2019 with what we're calling Talking Markets uh, today. Uh, we're going to kind of uh, go through what happened in 2018, talk about uh, what we see for 2019, and uh, try to have a little discussion and, and see if we can have uh, some interaction here today versus the standard Q&A format. Does that work for you guys? Works for me. Sounds good. All right. So with that, what happened last year, Sam? Yeah. So let's take a look at 2018. So there's um, a chart going around by Deutsche Bank, and I think it was labeled uh, the year when no one made many money connotation that everything was negative. So let's take a look at the landscape and see what uh, uh, how, how much truth that has. So if you take a look at what was positive last year, if you start out with the Barclays aggregate, that was up a whopping one basis point on the year at the index level. If you look at the DXY index, which is a US dollar um, index, you can see that that was up uh, you know just around 4% or so. And then a few Sectors from the fixed income area were were also slightly positive. If you looked at uh, agency MBS as well as uh, CMBS, you would see that those were were low single digit positives. But uh, pretty much every other asset class outside of that was negative. If you take a look at equities, both in the U.S., you look at it, developed markets, international, or I'm sorry, emerging markets, widely negative to the tune of anywhere from you know minus. 22, let's just say on the Shanghai comp or, you know, minus 22 on the dollar basis on the DAX to the S&P 500 down 4% or so, just a little bit over 4%. You look at commodities, commodities were broadly down as well for the year with the Bloomberg commodity index down just uh, 11% or so. So it was a pretty much dismal year uh, across asset classes for, for investable performance. So yeah, it sure didn't feel d- dismal when we started the year. I mean, maybe on the bond side, right? I think, you know, as we, we reflect on the year, what we talked about is that, you know, the most important decision process would be in the fixed income portfolio is focus on duration, right? And as you went through and kind of gave the summary in the fixed income markets, I mean, essentially the duration is what overwhelmed performance, right? Obviously there's yield in the market, but the price changes offsetting for that duration move with rates up over the year cause that. So as we think about 2019, Jeff, what are you thinking about about the fixed income market? Uh, we think about rates and is it going to be a similar carry through that we saw um, last year? And I mean, I think it was a tale of two markets, really, right? Or I'll, I'll call it three markets. Let's, let's call it the you know first five weeks of the of 2018, right? Rates up pretty quickly. Kind of made us honest people very quickly, probably a lot faster than we thought it would happen. Then a lot of sideways-ish behavior really throughout most of the summer. A little bit, you know, pretty dampened down volatility when it comes to rates. I'm talking about U.S. Treasuries here. And then all of a sudden, you know, we finally got the push through, break through the technical levels. And that was short-lived of, of this higher rate environment. All of a sudden, the last, what was it, about six, seven weeks of 2018, Risk off, uh, huge rate rally to get to what Sam said, uh, a whole one basis point on a total return basis on the Barclays U.S. aggregate. So do you think it's a pull through from there? Where do you think about it when you look at the rates? We're sitting, what, 271 on the 10 years record this today. How are you thinking about rates in this current environment? Right. So we're we're up like 30 basis points on the 10-year year end to today or yesterday. And I think that you know that that will kind of continue. You're going to get that rate increase over the, over the long term. You know, I obviously... You obviously a lot of it's due to, you know, what's the Fed going to do? Are we going to get a recession? If that happens, uh, then you could get that rally in rates again. But I think that, you know, all else being equal over the next, you know, call it medium term, uh, we think or I think that rates will be higher from from here. I'll agree with you on that, too. Uh, you'd mentioned the Fed. 
um, you know, talking in there and everything. So what happened? Like, uh, what happened? Why did sentiment shift in these last six weeks or so? If you were to go out here and as we're supposed to do as financial professionals, tell a narrative to substantiate what happened. Um, what do you think actually uh, was this catalyst for this risk off behavior? Because, I mean, we were saying new highs on the equity market back in September uh, of last year. No, I think you you hit the nail on the head. The, the Fed raised rates in September. They came out, raised rates again in December, widely anticipated. There was no surprise there. Um, and then if you saw the market move after the Fed meeting, when uh, Powell was, Chairman Powell was out there talking on his press conference, and he kind of said more of the same. He, he used the uh, automatic pilot phrase that I believe you, you talked about when you were on television that day. And that kind of spooked the market. The market was thinking that the quantitative tightening is really something that maybe it shouldn't be on automatic pilot, shouldn't be uh, you know every single month the same amount. It should be data dependent. And I think that you've seen a lot of talk walk back from the Fed uh, across all you know from from Powell to to uh, the vice chair saying, well, we didn't really mean automatic pilot, even though they used that exact phrase, but more of a it's going to be data dependent. And I think that the market has priced in some you know data dependency now. The 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 Fed forecast, Fed fund forecasts are, are down a lot. You, you're kind of, you know, for the next year went from two hikes to, you know, 60% chance of, of no hikes for the year. There's a non-zero probability of a, of a rate cut now. And to me, that says data dependent. Well, I think the market really wanted it, right? All of a sudden, you know, as, as the Fed did spook the market, Powell's now actually having to earn his keep there with that, that whopping salary he gets there to be chairman of the Fed. And so for so long, we heard this idea that he's the pragmatist. He has market experience. He's been a business person. He's been in the, the space for so long and that he's going to cater to the market. And I think we saw that first catering really at the press conference in December when, as you said, it was a widely expected hike. Everybody expected it to be a dovish type of press conference that is kind of walking back some of the rate hikes that they had talked about back in September and October. But I do think he made a mistake by just talking about autopilot. And I I actually want to take this chance too, because Sam, you and I were talking about this this morning, is that there's been this sentiment shift once again uh, over the last few days. Chairman Powell spoke last Friday and talked about data dependency, as you're talking about. Remember, this was the the phrase that Bernanke and Yellen really talked markets into. We're going to be data dependent uh, when thinking about it. But I did note something curious when he was talking about that, because he said that, you know, there's no set path for policy. And then he walked back the autopilot of quantitative tightening or the unwinding the balance sheet, forcing bonds into the marketplace. And what he he did, he, he also said that there would be data dependency on the quantitative tightening, which the market liked. But he did slide something in there. I'm not sure a lot of people caught. And he said, but I don't think 50 billion is that much right in the marketplace. But it was obvious the marketplace does think 50 billion is a lot. Uh, what peak uh, QE three, we were doing 80 billion a month. Um, which was eerily similar to the budget deficits back there in 2012 and 13. And what you find is that he still is committed to this idea. It seems like, at least to me, and reading between kind of the and parsing the words, that they are still going to focus on this quantitative timing. They, they keep sloughing it off and just saying it's not a big deal. And so uh, I think that's one thing that perhaps this risk on that we've seen for a whole, uh, you know, three and a half trading days or three and a quarter trading days now, it sure feels like the market ignored that. And there's kind of this come back to it. But maybe, Sam, we could talk about the economic landscape, right? So we talked about, you know, rates and everything and, you know, kind of how we're thinking about it. I mean, what what happened on the economic front over that course of those last six weeks? Was there this degradation in the data set? Was it just people waking up? What do you think um, changed when it comes to the economic data? I think the sentiment is starting to, to shift a bit. I mean, if you take a look at it from consumer sentiment as well as business sentiment, you're starting to see it around the corner there as well as, you know, some of these other indicators that we look at, like let's just say LEI, leading economic indicators, which tends to be a pretty good indicator of whether or, or preceding a recession, let's just say. And you know, one thing that we saw in the most recent print is that started to perhaps turn a corner. Not sure if it's the corner, but it's turned a corner. So we'll have to so continue watching that. change direction. Correct. So we're going to have to watch to see, you know, continue watching that uh, a little bit closely along, along with the, the other indicators that we, we look at, you know, a few dozen or so, which, you know, incidentally enough, are still flashing green. But the problem is the, the direction has changed. 
But one thing, actually, I, I did want to cap off on the, the JP discussion there by saying that it really does seem like the narrative matters is what, you know, between what you and you and Mayberry are saying, it's it's not just, you know, the data switching from data dependency to model driven to being more pragmatic. It seems like, you know, Powell is starting to quickly understand that what he says matters. And I think one of the the things that we had to look for in 2019, I'm not sh- sure if this is still up for play, but he did mention early on in 2018 that every single uh, Fed meeting is going to be an open presser. It's going to be a live presser afterwards. So we'll continue to see you know, if this happens you know, with the first meeting, second meeting and I, thus far. I think it's very curious you mentioned that because uh, talking to clients last year, you know, really after the February you know, kind of uh, scare we had with rates pressing up pretty quickly, kind of had some big corrections in equity markets, risk assets, and then it was short-lived. And, you know, talking to clients, as, you know, after the, the March meeting and after the Fed met, I was pointing out that we still haven't seen if Jay or Jerome, uh, let's call him by his real name, Jerome, Mr. Powell, is actually the pragmatist, right? Because when he got to these quarterly meetings with these press conferences, the data, the, the markets were calm. So all the volatility was intra these pre- in, in between these press conferences, right? And so, uh, I, as I said, I, I can't judge how well Powell's doing yet because we haven't actually seen him with what's called a pseudo crisis or you know just some noise in marketplaces. And is there a Powell put? You know, um, as people collectively referred to, you know, started with the Greenspan put, the Bernanke put, the Yellen put. That is, if if risk assets start to sell off enough irrespective of what's going on in the economy, that the Fed will accommodate to the market's behavior. And lo and behold, here we have in December, it sure feels like, it felt like that's what he was trying to do. And again, his his speech from last Friday, it seems like he is trying to be just really more the same. So I actually, now that I have the scorecard, I'm not really sure he's any different um, now that we've actually seen an action when there's actually just negative sentiment, you have downward price action and risk assets. It seems that perhaps... Powell is just uh, continuing more of the same. And that's the thing. I mean, you're really seeing, you're starting to see, you know, financial media pick up the the Powell put in, in the vernacular. So once the investor sentiment starts to swing that way, I think it's going to have a positive, it could have, a, you know, a positive impact on, on U.S. equities at, at the very least. But whether or not it's sustainable, it remains to be seen. Yeah. But well, what, hap- what happens if, if the stock market doesn't fall from here, if, say it's flat, and does does the Fed start trying to talk you know, Fed fund futures or the market into another price hike? I think Fed they do. Hike? I think they want. They want. They want. I, 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 they to want raise rates. Right. I mean, they have said out there they want to normalize rates. Powell did start. He started. I, I, I was joking. I think it was on the trading desk, right? I think it was after the the September at the September press conference. I was like, wow, you know, it took him it took him nine months on the job or eight and a half. Uh, on the job that all of a sudden he sounds like an economist, right? He started talking about models, as you say, he talked about our star, neutral rates, we're close to neutral, we're, we're far away from neutral, spook the market. Oh, we're, we're, we're somewhere, we're, we're close to the bottom of the range, never defines the range. For forward guidance and data dependency, we're, we're sure not getting a, a good look into what's going on there. So I, I think that what Mayberry is saying here, I, I, I totally agree with that. I think that if you have risk assets, you know, not dropping. You have GDP delivering where it's at right now, a continuation of average hourly earnings printing north of 3%. I think that he's going to use these, op- he, Jay Powell, is going to use these eight press conferences that they have after every meeting to start to set up the market to have a hike again. I think that's exactly right because they have said out there that they want to normalize policy, right? They want to cut rates. They don't want to do QE again, which is why I do believe that um, he's trying to slough off this whole idea of QT, 50 billions, nothing, no problem. Look at how much we've done so far. But it does have an impact. It is tightening financial conditions. So again, it's going to, you know, it's it, this is going to be a more active uh, discussion each time when it comes to Fed meetings eight times this year. And I think, I mean, I think you're right. And the way it's set up is right now is we're setting ourselves up for a lot of choppiness, given if it is truly data dependent, you've seen it already. I mean, what was the most recent last Friday, which would put us at January 3rd or 4th or so? Yeah, I mean, you saw a pretty good non-farm payroll numbers at 312,000. You saw, you referenced it already, average hour, hourly earnings at 32 
uh, year-over-year growth, and that's pretty positive numbers. That seems to put the you know, Fed rate hike back in play if it's truly data-dependent. Yeah, I mean, look, if you and we don't read too much into the jobs number. We definitely look at the average hourly earnings and, and other kind of measures of income and, and payroll growth. But if you actually look at the uh, average hourly earnings, we've seen 3% being printed for the last three months, right? So um, when you pull up the chart and we encourage people to go out there and look at that average hourly earnings rate, you'll see that it's undeniably an upward trend. Now, are we peaked? Are we at the top of it? Who knows? We'll, we'll know in a few more months. But I think there was something on that last Friday, too, as you're saying, the payroll data, everything kind of lined up. It was a, a what, how, what do you call the opposite of a perfect storm? perfect sunshine day or a beautiful day. Stars were aligned. Stars were aligned. Okay. I, I knew it had to be something cosmic. Um, so, but you, you have that with Powell out there. It's like the raw, raw sentiment, but let's talk about sentiment too, because I like to, when I we talk to people about markets, we talk to young analysts and things, you know, we all learn fundamentals. Then we start to learn technicals or some people go the other way around, bro, and, and, and learn technicals first. But you can always look at fundamentals, technically, you know, that ultimately markets trade on fundamentals, ultimately, right? The time horizon can be long. Technicals tell you entry points, but you can never fight market sentiment, right? That's why momentum so strong. Market sentiment does that. So what other kind of sentiment indicators are you looking at right now, Sam, out there? And what are they telling you uh, when it comes to kind of the feelings of kind of prominent pieces of our economy? Well, I think we alluded to it earlier. I mean, if you look at business sentiment, it does seem like it's somewhat decelerating. And then that does have a significant impact on you know future behavior for these corporations on whether or not they want to continue and invest in personnel invest in capital, other capital expenditures where they're, they're, they're trying to build out infrastructure for future growth. Well, let me pause you right there. So when you're talking about sentiment, it, do you think sentiment changed because asset prices are down? Do you think it's just all of a sudden that, or is there some something changing in the economy? Is it reflexive? Or do you think that there are two independent things and the prices are following the sentiment? Yeah, it's, it's perhaps it's a little bit of what the actual data print is is showing, but I think a lot of it is rhetoric out there outside and away from the actual economy itself. I mean, if you look at the political rhetoric that's coming out from our administration and you know elsewhere geopolitically, yeah, there's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of uncertainty out there. You know, people talk about the markets not liking uncertainty, but trying to you know imagine yourself as a CFO or some other C-suite individual at a corporation, and you're trying to lay out your your itinerary, your plans for you know the the future coming months, the coming years, it, it just makes it that much more difficult. You know, on top of that, you have this. I mean, Trump and she may not be talking directly themselves, but you know, their their people are talking. Let's just say right now we're in the midst of it. And uh, well, today's trade peace again, right? Your favorite phrase, trade yeah. peace, but it's trade peace on like buying soybeans again, maybe some gas inputs and oil. It's still not going to the crux of the matter, which is. IP, right? And that's a structural issue that, you know, needs to be overcome before maybe needs to be overcome. You know, we'll see if uh, if Trump continues to toe the line on that one. But you know, at the end of the day, I think a lot of the sentiment that's shifting is because of this uncertainty. And you couple that with perhaps, you know, some slowing data points, you know, you're rolling off uh, this 2019 is going to be, you know, first quarter 2019, from an earnings perspective, that's going to be the first year where you're rolling off the the positive tailwind that you know many of these corporations had in the form of fiscal stimulus, a la the corporate tax cut. So, I mean, I think the March 31st, 2019, and the the reports that come out after the earnings reports that come out after that will be somewhat telling. So, sentiment, Jeff, what are you seeing out there too? What, what does it look like in the housing market? Kind of core piece in there, like the energy market. What are these things telling you about the behavior out there right now? Well, I think that you got. A lot of obviously a lot of volatility in December in I mean, not not necessarily the housing market, but the housing market doesn't look strong. I think you obviously higher rates while they're still low from a historical perspective are up considerably from their lows from what people kind of benchmark themselves to. And so, you know, that's obviously on the margin, not helpful for housing. The housing prices haven't incomes haven't kept up with housing prices. Let's put it that way. It's a little bit simpler to, to think about. And so. I think that that's certainly an issue going forward is the housing housing market. Now it's not people can get a little bit comfortable knowing that it's not as big of a piece of the of GDP as it was in 06, 07 or 05. Um so it it shouldn't I say shouldn't cause a a crisis again this time, uh but it's certainly you know not helpful to 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 GDP growth. 
Right. So it sounds like uh, you're giving me the cop out answer here and just saying it's rates again. Right. Yes. I mean, it's like when people buy a car, right? They buy a house the same way. It's like, how much can I afford on the monthly payment? Don't really care about the price. Don't really care about the rate. Put it in the calculator. Go to the guy in the back room or when you do the mortgage, sit there for four days while they try to figure out, you know, the rate there. And tell me what the payment is, right? That's right. I think uh, that's how people buy houses and cars. And, you know, uh, the rates are, you know, they obviously affect things. Overall, affordability is declining in the the housing market. I mean, you talked about the rates. You talked about the incomes not keeping pace. We're talking about the housing prices. They've grown fairly steadily. And don't forget the tax implications that we have, especially on the, the salt State and local taxes, everyone. Oh, yeah. So uh, I guess uh, quarterly taxes are due next week. Thanks for reminding me, Sam, about that. And um, thank you for the tax hike, uh, the administration and our our local Congress people. Um, So let's move on. So this is this is kind of uh, thinking about the the economic sentiment. So if we go out there and kind of look at what 2018 GDP looks like, right, we don't have the final data we get at the end of January uh, for the fourth quarter. We get the first estimate there. So what are we going to see? Roughly 2.9-ish for a real GDP growth rate? Is that what you think? Well, let me tell you this. As we typically do, we summarize the uh, the sell side research. And today we we're looking at a table of, let's say, eight or nine different sell side shops. And their consensus estimate for real GDP is 2.5%. So slightly down, let's well, just say, for, from the that's last for 19. For 2019. I was, I, so don't go to the future. I was talking. I, yeah, <laughs> don't, don't, don't defer the question here. I was asking, what do you think actual 2018 GDP will actually print at? 2.8, 2.9, real, right? Slap on inflation, yeah. nominal GDP. What do you think? Inside of five on nominal on yeah. that? Yeah. So uh, four and a half to five, let's just call it somewhere right. in there. I'm not going to put a... To the uh, to the decimal to the point, decimal point. Okay. right? So a five, let's call it four and a half to five percent nominal GDP. Um, what's wrong with that? Sounds pretty good to me, right? I mean, weren't we weren't we clamoring for this? Re- remember when people talked about nominal GDP targeting? Remember the NGT thing or or NGDP targeting? Remember that thing uh, back in what was that eleven or so when we were having the other crisis that the Fed shouldn't target inflation, we should target nominal GDP. And what was that number? Five to six percent, right? I think President Trump, when he came in, thought that was real GDP, uh, but effectively, that's what it is. So if we're hitting those targets, and let's say we slow, so you were saying what consensus on the street is what two and a half for 2019 GDP. Even if we, you know, given kind of the collapse we saw in oil prices, really uh, after the Khashoggi thing, the unfortunate incident there back in. Um, the fourth quarter, you're going to get a little bit of uh, kind of headline CPI is going to take a little bit of hit, although oil seems to be rebounding right now with TI trading over 50 again today. You'll probably see what, let's just put one and a half on top of that. It's still a four nominal GDP, right? I mean, those used to be recessionary, old school, uh, back before uh, the intervention of all the banks, central banks that is. But, you know, what's wrong with a four, four and a half percent nominal GDP? Is this the end of the world like people were pricing? Uh, back, you know, let's say in the middle of December or Christmas Eve, uh, really, of last year? I think at the end of the day, if you break it out into components, perhaps, then you could take a look to see where the contributing drivers are. Um, it seems like the consumer side is probably ebbing away or has been ebbing away, you know, fairly uh, steadily. But the question now becomes with we're talking about deficits on the real print of around $800 billion for 2018. But if you take a look at year over year change on the actual debt level, it looks something more like $1.4 trillion in uh, an increase in debt year over year. I mean, what component does the government play in that GDP, you know, calculation? And if it's becoming more and more, it's one of those things where I mean, you got to just look to see where the over leveraged components are. Right. So, so the government's over levered. Is that what you're Very saying? Very possible. Yeah. I mean, it's certainly looking that. Well, I, I'm going to jump on that point you said about the consumer too, because you know I, I was belly aching here about quarterly tax payments and you know being in one of the salt affected states. But when you look at most households in this country, especially across middle America, not living in the coast or the highly dense areas, what you see is that they got not only you have the strong wage growth, but they also got a tax cut. Right. And so when you look at these things, what you find is that it's almost as good as it gets. Right. Corporate tax cuts. You've got individual tax cuts. You've got wages printing at highs of the cycle. Maybe that's part of the reason that 
you know, the market all of a sudden said, you know what? It probably doesn't get much better than this when we start to do year-over-year comparisons. You're forgetting about additional fiscal stimulus that can yeah. just come out, man. Let's just keep this thing going, right? right. Keep the party going, you know? So- As you just said about the government lever, now you want more Correct. fiscal stimulus. I'm not yeah. saying I want it, but I'm yeah. saying it's it's possible that it comes down the pipeline, right? More individual tax cuts. Why not? It's already been talked about. We haven't gotten to infrastructure spending, which is a huge campaign, you know, piece of the campaign you know, in the most recent elections. We haven't even gotten there yet. Oh, I think, isn't that what the, the discussion was on TV last night? Infrastructure building, building this highly effective wall, right? <laughs> yeah, I don't know if that's really a, a positive infrastructure spending in terms of revenue generation. But, uh, you know, like we like to say around here, you can dig a hole in your backyard and hire a couple people to do it, but what's it going to do for you in the long run? And then you hire them to fill it back up again. Now you hire two different people to fill it back in, and then you just keep this circular thing. So in right? this case, the wall goes up, wall goes down, wall goes up, wall goes down. <laughs> and guess what? GDP increases every time you do That's that, great. but you're no better off. So I think it's a fair point. So let's get into the G uh, for all of you uh, GDP nerds out there. Um, you know, we all know it's uh, G plus C plus I minus net exports for this, the GDP equation. And G seems to be driving it. So what's the G look like? You, you were kind of alluding to these numbers. What um, percentage of uh, GDP is the fiscal deficit at this point? So, I mean, if you look at it from, let's just say, the, let's just use the $800 billion. I mean, you got, uh, I think the numbers that we saw most recently, it's, was it mid-single digits? as a percentage of GDP. But if you look at, I mean, a lot of these numbers, I just, I just don't believe. I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, if you take a look at the comparison, let's just, I know it's not deficit, but let's just say if you take a look at the debt to GDP ratios um, in the US that purportedly were less than 100%. But is that truly including all of the debt that the federal government owes? I would say not. And I'd say, you know, if you take a look at other reports out there that start to add in the, um, intergovernmental debt, the debt that the government holds you know, to itself, if you start to add in the debt that the Fed balance sheet uh, retains, and if you start to you know, look at some of the uh, unfunded liabilities that the government will have in the future, uh, it's not debt yet, but it's a liability, then you're looking at uh, you know, ratios that are well exceed 100%. You know, you're looking, you're getting close to two. Right. But you know, as people say, countries are not like a personal household. Uh, they can keep levering up for a while, right? Printing press. Yeah, right. I mean, when you have debt to debt to income north of a hundred percent, it becomes uh, a little challenging to survive out there as as an individual. Jeff, so where does this put us? Right? You said you think the path of rates is still higher. Uh, you were wrong for the last six weeks or so. Tell me how you get to that rates going higher. I think that when you look at it, you look at as Sam has said, the ballooning deficit. You've that obviously help push puts upward pressure on rates. Uh, whether the the Fed is continuing their QT on automatic pilot or or continuing to you know reduce their balance sheet that on you know on the margin again puts pressure on on high rates to be higher. And ex- let's explain that to people. So what you're saying is that if they actually continue this quantitative tightening, bonds have to be paid off, so they go in the budget deficit, but they get refinanced and they don't they're not bought by the Fed, right? So they end up right. having to sit in investor hands. So it's a supply of bonds coming to the market where uh, effectively they were controlled and price, I hate to say manipulated, but effectively you had a price taker, let's use the economic term. You had a price taker out there that said, I will just indiscriminately buy this debt. And now you have to put it in investor hands, right? So right, right. And so either you need to increase yields so that the demand side goes up. I mean, I guess that's the only solution. Supply, uh, supply and demand, demand. Right. Draw, draw the picture. Yeah, everybody gets your. What do you guys uh, do with your hands there? What do you guys do with your hands? <laughs> yeah, Forming yeah. the X. Yep, that's the X. So um, the problem is, is you got to slide that down until you find the market clearing price. So it is interesting though, because what whatever happens if we actually have a recession? You know, I mean, can you imagine what the deficit? I mean, you already thrown around these numbers with a T. What was the last stimulus in, in the crisis? Remember TARP when it came out? That was only seven hundred billion. That was the bailout for the entire financial system was $700 billion. And we didn't even blink to do that in a fiscal deficit in a purportedly great, strong, bestest, bigliest economy ever. I'm using some nice words there, but uh, it's, it's pretty interesting that if you take a look at the last 10 or 11 years or so, we've been averaging right around a trillion dollars in in uh, deficit build um, per annum. So I guess if you take a look at, if you want to look at a silver lining of something, one in 1.4 trillion, isn't that much higher than average at this point? So <laughs> yeah, I guess that's. But if you if you say it in billions and you say it's 1,400 billions, right? 
or 1,400, you know, 1.4 million millions, uh, it starts to sound like a lot more money. That's why we create these bigger words just so we can chop off uh, all those commas out there. So, you know, you mentioned that too. I, I, what was it, probably five or six years ago, we were putting together some charts and this stuff and just watching how much the deficit exploded, right? The, the outstanding debt. And we weren't getting anything out of GDP, right? I mean, with the money multiplier when it comes to the government is usually pretty poor. So as you start to think about the setup here, it is going to be, you know, just more and more supply of security. So uh, what does this do for global financial markets? Don't, 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 bo- don't both just thought, jump all thought, over that I question. I thought Sam was going to, he, yeah. he was about to talk about something. My mind of thought was on something else. I just started thinking that uh, all this ballooning deficit doesn't come free either, right? I mean, I guess that kind of was a segue into that question that you just asked as well. But just that just made me recall one uh, data point where... Yeah, I think on a daily basis, we're, the, the U.S. government is paying somewhere around the lines of one and a half billion dollars per day, calendar day, calendar year on debt expense, yeah. on interest say, expense. Say that one more time. Let everybody sit down. You know, hopefully you're not driving. You're not going to crash your car or anything. Say that number again. What is it? Is that 1,500 millions is equal to <laughs> $1.5 billion yeah. per day? 365 days a year wow. is that uh, right. payment. And that's doesn't take a vacation. Yeah, you got to carry over the weekend. Don't yeah. forget. Yeah, that's the great thing about being a bond investor. They carry on the weekend when the markets are closed. I call it the, the bond private equity market. Every weekend is a bond private equity market. No vol, no mark to market, just carry. A billion and a half a day. Wow. So, I mean, going back to your original question, what does this do for financial markets? If I mean, if we operate under the presumption that rates are, you know, on their way up, at least in the mid to long term, you know, it it, it seems at least one 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 good thing about um, the markets of late is that uh, bond and equity correlation seems to be working again in the sense that the risk off, you know, that we saw in risk markets, you know, late December, seem to be offset by corresponding increase in price on bonds. So, I mean, that's that's one positive. But just thinking about, you know, where we're going with rates, I mean, just talking about the cost of financing going higher, I mean, what does that mean for U.S. corporations that are financing into a higher, perhaps rolling over their, their debt into a higher, you know, rate environment for perhaps, you know, their, the first time in this last cycle of, let's say, 20, 25 years? Yeah, what we've been following, you know, the corporate debt market for a while, too. And when you look at the outstanding corporate debt, not on nominal terms, because, you know, the economy is supposed to grow, we have inflation and things out there. But if you look at the corporate debt outstanding relative to GDP, it's the highest ever today, right? So the leverage is everywhere. Um, I remember back in 2011, 12, talking to clients and people discussing, oh, the bond bubble, the bond bubble, it's in treasuries, right? Remember remember that discussion? Everybody's like, right. oh, we printed all this money, inflation's coming, all this stuff. But what was sneakily happening, it wasn't sneaky, it was blatant in front of your eyes. What was happening is corporate America was creating this kind of, if you want to use the word bubble, the bond bubble, right? They were using these low rates to lever up their company, right? Issue debt, buy back shares, pay dividends, that's what you're supposed to do, right? right. On, a one, on, a one, on a one-off, that's what you're supposed to do. But right. Yeah, Everyone does their job. Right. 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 Everybody does it. And so I think that's why people were so critical of the Fed, too. Uh, they, they kept focusing on treasuries, but they should have been focused on the knock-on effects everywhere as people were following the textbook uh, corporate finance example. Uh, I will give that to corporate America. Smart people running, <laughs> running their businesses like you should. But at some point, we're going to have to pay the piper there. So... Okay, let's talk about, we've talked about the bond market here. Uh, well, we've talked about a lot of economics and leading into it. So what is what, what is a bond investor to do in 2019? I think there's two things you can do. All right. Well, that's not just one. It's that's two. two. All right. Uh, what, it depends on what you want to do. <laughs> if you want to like buy and hold, then buy the two-year treasury and, you know, live, take your 258 yield and reevaluate in a year or, or two years. Let's say two years. And see where things are. Well, yeah. If you're going to buy and hold, you have you to wait. You have to wait two years. Okay. Well, you could buy the one-year T bill, two fifty or whatever. Two fifty. Two fifty-nine. It's actually inverted. It's actually inverted. A little kinky out there. Well, let's do that. No, no two-year. Buy the one-year bill. The long and reassess next year. Reassess next year. Okay. That's one. You don't know, you know, whether a recession's coming. You don't know, kind of. There's as we talked about, there's going to be a lot of vol over the next year. So maybe you want to wait that ball out. Don't try to get cute. Okay, let me stop you on that thought because I find this pretty interesting too as investors are thinking about the curve and thinking about how to invest a bond portfolio. So we're talking about this glut of supply out there of treasuries coming, 
you know, obviously it, it just the budget, right? You have the current account deficits, which means we're struggling to get reinvestment and capital and things out there too. But let's just take that idea you just had there, the one-year T-bill. All of a sudden, it offers an alternative to folks, right? So in the light of actually financing all this deficit, you because the Fed has hiked nine times, right, now after the last meeting, all of a sudden, you have an alternative to do something with in the marketplace. So not only are you saying this is less attractive because we know more securities are coming, right? Usually that means prices go right. down, right? But also, I have an alternative. I can just sit in this risk-free asset. You have inflation risk, of course, right? The purchasing power can go away. But you can just sit and wait, right? And so, I mean, th this is the conundrum the Fed faces. If they keep hiking, too, you just make it more and more attractive to not want to buy the rest of your debt uh, across the curve. So, Which right. is exactly the opposite of why they started, you know, people would argue QE in the first place, right? Right. Yeah, right. To... All right. So let's hear idea number two from Jeff Mayberry on what to do with their bond portfolio if you don't want to buy and hold and wait it out. Uh, the idea number two is a little, obviously a little more complicated. And it's, uh, you know, we don't know when a recession is coming. We've seen spreads widen out uh, in your kind of risk assets, your fixed income risk assets, high yield, bank loans, investment grade corporate bonds. And so, you know, it's, I, I hate saying like talking your book, but you can go to an active manager who is keeping our eye on these things and, you know, willing to move in, in or out of different sectors, depending on, um, you know, what they like from a relative value perspective, you know, whether, whether you, and if you, if you don't want to keep your eye on the market every single day of, do I want to buy high yield today? Or do I want to buy treasuries? You can have any, any active manager do that and, you know, someone who's more macro focused. I think that's true. I mean, I think one of the points that you're bringing up now is just that security selection is going to matter. Asset allocation is going to matter in the coming months. And, you know, really what you want to do if you're looking at the credit side of the, the equation in fixed income, you're going to want to go to something that's more quality. You know, perhaps, you know, you're going to want to lower your duration, reduce your interest rate exposure. Um, if there is going to be this interest rate volatility that we're talking about, but also getting out there, kicking the tires, looking at the credits, taking a look and taking a deep dive into what they actually own, how much leverage, you know, strength of balance sheet, and just really go out there and just not buy the betas out there. Man, we've been talking about this for nine years that one day it's going to be, it's going to be a security selection. We always hear a stock pickers market. So I think Sam's recommending a bond pickers market. So it seems to be. Yeah. It seems to be. And the same thing. I mean, I think, you know, what you said about the stock pickers market could be coming to fruition again as well. I mean, right. people for the past 10, 11 years, coincidentally with the, the period of QE, have been able to get away with just buying the beta in U.S. equities and getting away with it. It's been a tough benchmark to beat. But I think for the same reasons that we've been talking about in the economy, as well as what we're seeing in the credit markets and the fixed income, the same could be true for, for U.S. equities. All right, uh, let's go on to real assets. All right, let's talk about that. Jeff, you uh, you help run our uh, commodity strategy around here. Uh, what are you thinking about commodities as you think about 2019? Higher rates? Does that mean stronger dollar? Bad for commodities? How, how are you thinking about the space? Well, I think that you, if you look at, let's use oil as one of your big commodities. We, we put together a chart that looks at, you know, obviously oil price. And uh, one of our guys said oil's gotten walloped. Yes. And it certainly has gotten walloped. Yeah. And uh, yeah, know, I mean, and it was walloped. I mean, I mean, down thirty bucks a barrel over the course of what, like um, since three October? Months. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. No. So is that is obviously that that trend isn't sustainable down. Uh, it's kind of it's bounced off, you know, off of the off of the lows from there. I think that you you're kind of you were in these different markets last year where you were kind of in this sixty to seventy dollar range, and you kind of moved up to this sixty five to seventy five, and then. When the bottom fell out, you've kind of hit a new. You're, you're obviously in a new range now on the on the low, uh, but it seems like you're still in this fifty to sixty dollar a barrel range. The lows kind of got got the. I think that you know you could get some upside from here, uh, just given that you know four months ago we were at seventy five dollars a barrel, seventy six. Yeah, well, I think it was also a year where the market wasn't really believing that uh, there would be a trade war. No one listened to Trump's campaign. No one listened to him for the last 15, 20 years. And essentially, it came to fruition. And so first, the metals took it on the chin, right? right? Uh, you're seeing some rebounds uh, here today in industrial metals simply on the trade piece, as you call it, Sam. Um, it's the opposite of trade war out there. And so if we already get some resolution, I think that probably is the one sector or the one asset class that will probably benefit the most. And I think you know we've, we've seen that the, the trade war or the, the trade talks 
have not helped China. Obviously, that, that's hurt. You've seen like Apple come out and say that their iPhone production is low or they're not going to talk about it because it's, it's not good. Well, because they're charging $1,200 a phone, <laughs> right? But, but I mean, you know, that, that's on the mark. That's not good for, for China. It hasn't helped China. Obviously, it's hurt the U.S. some. And that, you know, a resolution is in best interest for both parties. Right. And so it's a matter of how we get there or when we get there. But I think that, you know, we will get this trade peace, uh, you know, hopefully sometime in 2019. Isn't it kind of, it's kind of interesting, right? That by our stock market finally going down, right? And not just trucking to all-time highs again and risk assets selling off. Don't, don't you think that kind of incentivizes uh, President Trump to actually want to negotiate? The trade piece a little bit more yeah yeah definitely yeah. i mean on the market was up he was touting the market every you know not every day but every time he hit a new high you talk about how great the stock market is and then since it started falling there's been no no, no more tweet, tweets. No tweets about it yeah. yeah yeah the tweets are focused on other things today so all right but what about the dollar what about the dollar as you think about it talking about higher yields people connote that with higher dollar price how do you think about that well i think that you you've seen you know as sam said earlier you look at the the dxy index you're at you know, 96, or I think it's like 95 and a half today. It's, it's moved, you know, pretty considerably. I think today. the high was like 97 half roughly, yeah, on Dixie, right? It was a, the, the high, I'm saying, in 2018. Yes, yeah. yeah, I think that's right. From my perspective, I don't I don't know where it's going to go, obviously, but I think that you could get, uh, you could get a, a pretty big move up from here. Up in the dollar. In the dollar. Okay, so Sam, what do you think? Well, if, if I believe the... The story about the, the debt story that we've been talking about, it's very possible that you would see some dollar weakness there just given the oversupply. Um, right. Issuing debt, you know, I mean, it kind of softens your position, right? Yeah. That as well as, I mean, it's it's perhaps, you know, this this trade war. I'll call it trade war now. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. That's just, that's just called we're, this, we're finally getting peace thing because you've been <laughs> yeah, wrong about trade war. Right? Yeah. Right? Yeah. I started out okay. 2018 talking about peace. Now I'm starting out 2019 talking about war. So let's just hold trade on. The, war. Trade oh, war. war. Okay. Trade war. Trade war. Trade war. Let's be uh, clear here. But if we're talking about basically uh, some type of trade war with China buying, exporting less to the US, US buying less uh, from China, then the US, China has less dollars to spend, less dollars to spend. You know, and buying uh, U.S. Treasuries ultimately, you know, rolling off as well as a function of the fewer exports that they have, then perhaps that you know argues for some softening in the dollar as well. But I guess it would be uh, contingent on whether or not we achieve some type of trade peace, or if we continue down this path of you know, four hundred fifty billion dollars in uh, in tariffs over you know against China. Okay, what? Okay, I got two more, then we're gonna wrap it up a little bit here. So recession, it's a word that people started throwing around last quarter. What is your guys' outlook for recession in 2019? I think that when you, we, look, we have a whole bunch of indicators we look at. And as we looked at them, they're mostly, they're mostly green. There are some, you know, yellows or reds, but they're all the yield curve, okay. right? And so whether it's three months to 10 year or twos, fives or twos, tens, whatever it is, whichever one is the one that you know, or, matters the most. Twos, threes, as people are talking about. Twos, threes, inverted. Like, when did all these things happen, right? Yeah. Right. Twos, tens is the one I like to look at. That's the one that historically has worked. I know th- three month, 10 year has worked also. But, you know, I think you're at the case where, as Sam said, things are start- derivative. Well, he didn't say the first derivative, but the first derivative started to shift. And so maybe things are moving down. You're cl- certainly closer to a recession, but I don't think it's imminent. Certainly not in the first half of the year. I think you could, obviously, we're talking about you get some vol. Uh, in that period, as a recession gets closer, and that maybe you want to kind of lighten up on those risk assets as we get closer to a recession. Our leading indicators are still flashing green. These things still tend to give us a little bit of runway. But like we've mentioned earlier on in this podcast, that these things are starting to turn a little bit. So, you know, maybe in the next few months, if they continue down their trend, they would start flashing red. But even then, I think, you know, the first half of 2019 seems to be out of question. The remainder of 2019. I'm going to put it out there, you know, as we can revisit this at the second half of 2019. But I'm thinking that's really, really taking big stands today. Yeah, but uh, I'm going to say no. How about that? No, it just doesn't seem to be going that way. But, you know, I mean, the conversation always comes around to when the yield curve starts to to get flattened. And eventually, if it gets inverted, is is it going to be different this time? I think. We got to take a look. I mean, it's definitely flashing that something is not normal. Having a the long bill, as I like to call it, the twelve month uh, bill, out yield everything on the, the the note curve out to one year, two year, 
you know, if you look at the five year, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's, you're getting basically, let's just call it 10 basis points to go out 10 years or nine years versus the, the, the long bill. Yeah. So, I mean, just something is going on. It's, it's basically reflecting that something is not normal in the market. And I think ultimately what's going to trigger in a recession is, you know, that could, you know, keep us in, out of, or, you know, a recession would ultimately be, you know, bringing it back full circle to the Fed. All right. So speaking of other troubled areas, Brexit, thoughts, questions, concern? Is there a deal? No deal? We're coming up on that big date, right? March 29th, 2019 is the, the hard date, right? Yep. So, I mean, I heard an interesting point right now that uh, from Bill Campbell here and our global team basically saying that he hopes that May just comes out with no deal. It's ultimately would probably be better for Great Britain because ultimately you can imagine what the problems, I mean, there, there's too many to enumerate, but the problems that we are seeing in the EU, if Britain can make a clean break from that, perhaps it's in their best interest to do so. There might be some pain, pain for long-term gain. Correct. All right. Jeff, uh, do you want to actually answer it yourself instead of kicking it to another portfolio manager here like Sam did? No, I, I mean, I agree with Sam. I think that, or I agree with what Bill said <laughs> to Sam. Okay. <laughs> yeah, Sam likes to take credit for these things. Yeah, yeah I noticed that. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. So, what what do investors do? What what would be your best piece of advice as we wrap up here before we go and put Sam on the spot and make him actually do a uh, Sherman Says segment for once? What's your one tidbit elevator pitch advice for investors in 2019? I'll start with uh, you, Sam. Look for quality in your portfolios. Break that out within your, your various asset classes. So if you're looking at uh, fixed income, I like the uh, stuff that's going to be a little bit shorter in duration, cleaner quality in terms of not necessarily by credit ratings, but I'm talking about actually going in and looking at the credits that you own and assessing the balance sheet strength, assessing the amount of leverage that these corporations are taking on. And then, as I mentioned, the duration theme would also play out on the government side as well. But I still feel like, you know, given the fact that the way that treasuries behaved at the longer end of the, in the mid to the belly to the longer end of the curve, the way they behaved in the last few weeks of 2013, that it's still prudent to hold some duration there as well to kind of offset the... Uh, any sell-off and risk. Yeah, I, you keep harping on the six-week correlation here. You know, yeah, I'm but, not saying it's. it's no, yeah. but I, I, I actually wanted, I wanted to focus on it for a second because they, you had this strong correlation. It's that you know, equities are still doing good. It was the positive growth story. Rates were going up, going up for the right reason, as people like to say. And then eventually, it breaks. Right, something caused about a new level. So I would argue that you know, especially if you start to look at the chart, this is just a retest back down and on the way to push a bit higher. Right. And so I think you still get this kind of negative correlation that is yields up, prices down. That means you lose money in your bonds in the short term while equities could go up. But again, you're going to break the mechanism. But is it 325 on the uh, on the on the 10 year this time or 315 on the 10 year? No, it's probably 335, 340. So because we have this anchoring that we're comfortable, we've seen that number recently. So we're able to push forward. So I will agree with your correlation aspect, but I think uh, somehow Sam just got a lot of fixed income in his own PA uh, in the last uh, six Talking my weeks. book? Yeah. <laughs> All right, Jeff, your elevator pitch is, as I'm, I'm speaking too much here. Um, I would say that, you know, beware of the volatility for this year. I think that you, uh, you know, as we like to say, stay safe, be, you know, safety yeah. and, and don't get cute. Don't try to, you know, time markets perfectly. I think you're okay over the first half of the year buying some risk assets, but keep an eye on it through the second half of the year. See where, you know, keep an eye on those high yield spreads. They tend to be a pretty good indicator of, of trouble coming. Uh, you know, people were, people were scared in December. They've rallied back, you know, tightened it, tightened back in. So people are a little bit less scared. You don't see as, you know, you don't see the high yield guys, um, you know, sweating bullets on, on the trading desk, but that's, some, that's a good indicator to keep an eye on to see kind of how the sentiment's going. All right, perfect. Well, thanks for tuning in. Since uh, we're going to do a Sherman Says with Sam involved today, uh, we brought in a special guest here who came up with the phrases himself, and his name is none other than Eric Dahl. Welcome to the Sherman Show for the first time, Eric. Hey, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Okay, so Eric, you want to tell everybody the rules of Sherman Says, what we're going to do? Or uh, we'll let Sam do it since um, you know it's his favorite part of the segment. I, I don't want to derail him of that joy. Yeah, so Sherman says what's going to happen today is Eric Dahl is going to give Sherman, Mayberry, and myself 
each a term, and with that, we're going to have a response. So he's going to alternate, starting with who? Starting with Jeff Mayberry is the pointing uh, that, that, that I'm seeing here so that you guys his, can this see. This is his first time. He doesn't know that people can't see him. Okay. Welcome, Eric. So the first Sherman says question for Jeff Mayberry, and I presume you're going to go to Jeffrey Sherman after that. And That's correct. And then myself, and then keep rotating. You, so. got, you got to speak into the mic. So this, we should have had a test run with you. So here we go. Pain trade. Scary. Big Mac index. Expensive. Destiny. Horrible. Dallas Cowboys. They're going down to the Rams. Autopilot. Jerome. Not Tesla? Nope. Nope. <laughs> Taiwan. Island. Main yes, Street. I would, I would say that. I would say they're the ones that scared to do. Stay apolitical here. Main Street. Main Street got their tax cut. Floyd Mayweather Jr. Oh man. <laughs> Money. <laughs> TBE. I think I Eric's having more fun. Yeah, we may we may have to bring Eric in the future, man. He's having so much fun here. Okay. Jackson Hole. Not my scene. Winter is coming. No, it's here, actually. I mean, it's not that cold out. No, but winter started on well, December 21st. Technically, yes, but it's okay. not that Speak cold like out. a southerner. Yeah. Well, the uh, Game of Thrones reference. Anyone south yeah, of the wall? I don't All right. Okay. Junk. Avoid. Greenback. Winner. Super Bowl. Oh, I mean... This is the good question. I'm going Chiefs. Cartman. <laughs> Love him. Switzerland. Cold. San Francisco Giants. Overpaid. Healthspan. Bone density. Joe Rogan experience. Let's get him on here. <laughs> All right. Well, there you have it. That is uh, Eric's first time actually uh, coming up with the questions, announcing them. I think he had a good time. He still got a smile on his face. Yeah, he's so, still laughing. Yeah. He's... Yeah. So uh, we may have to bring him in again for that. So thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Hopefully you found some of this informative today. Um, we'll be back in a couple weeks with uh, some more guests uh, out there. If you have any suggestions, uh, hit us up at shermanshow at doubleline.com. You can send us an email there. You can find the podcast on the Double Line website, iTunes. Google Play, SoundCloud, some other things out there that I have no idea about. So again, thanks for listening and we'll be back at you in a couple of weeks. The audio presentation represents Double Line's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without the expressed written permission of Double Line. Double Line has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from Double Line, please contact media at doubleline.com. Neither Double Line nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability therefore including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. Double Line is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any Double Line entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Double Line entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Copyright 2019, Double Line Capital.